If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Revelation 21, 1 and 2. Revelation, last book of the Bible, 21, 1 and 2. And then um, I got a number of scripture passages I'll be sharing this morning up on the screen. And then eventually we'll be back to Revelation 6, 9 through 11. We're in this series called uh, Heaven. And this morning we're going to be talking about transitional housing. So if you need a Bible, slip a hand up. We've got ushers coming down the aisles. Uh, you can borrow one this morning. Um, keep it if you need it. Uh, or you can scan a code up here, and that'll take you right to our Bible app where everything's at for you if, you if you'd rather do it electronically. But thanks for being here this morning, worshiping with us, um, and those who are in traditions, those who are joining us online, and those who will be in kindred uh, this morning. Different places of worship, but one church focusing our attention on one God. I started this series two weeks ago talking about our temporary life and just how quickly our life goes by and our time on this earth. And I used a clock illustration and, and, and challenged you to see where are you at on the clock, so to speak, and, and just how quickly the scripture points to our life just being like a snap of a finger or a blink of an eye or the mist on the ground. And then last week, um, I talked about uh, the reality of heaven and hell and that they are, they are eternal. Heaven and hell are both eternal and they are real places. And today I want us to focus what I like to call or what many have referred to as transitional housing. When you hear the word heaven, like if we were playing a word association game, I just said heaven. What comes to your mind? What image comes to your mind? What picture comes to your mind? What comes to most people's minds or many that I have heard from is just this idea of an eternal home. The place believers go uh, to spend all eternity in the presence of God, right? Would you agree with that? You guys are quiet. Like, a, right? Thank you. What we also know to be true is that the final heaven, the new Jerusalem, is not done yet. It's still in the construction phase. The final heaven will be absolutely mind-blowing. 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, it'll be the most amazing place you've ever set eyes on. The final heaven will exceed your wildest imagination times a billion. It'll be the most incredible place. So let's start with what we know and let's go from there. The final heaven isn't done and if the final heaven isn't done yet, the next question obviously is, where do Christians go when they die? Until the final heaven is done. Because many, I mean, how many funerals have I done or people that you know, well, they're in heaven. Well, what in the world does that mean? Maybe you have either had a house built and you're waiting on the house to get done or you've transitioned from one house to another and there was this gap period where you had to be in an apartment or maybe you've moved from one state to another state and you had this, this, this transitional housing concept. It's that in-between time when you're waiting for your final home. Now imagine the new house is heaven and your final destination, but it's not ready to be lived in just yet. Well, just like there's transitional housing here on this earth while we wait for our final home, there's also transitional housing in heaven while we wait for our final home. So today, let's try and answer a few questions about the so-called transitional housing. 
If you're not already there, Revelation 21, one through two, I'm gonna ask four questions and attempt to answer these four questions. What happens to believers when they die? Revelation 21, one and two says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. When a person dies, God will look at a person, an individual's faith, and whether or not they have a personal relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. You've heard me talk about that many times. But the result of his findings will determine whether a person will be ushered into an intermediate heaven or an intermediate hell. Every person will be judged on their faith. The moment that they die. A person's faith determines their destination. And a person's works here on this earth determines their rewards or their lack of rewards. Faith and works. Works do not lead to your faith, but faith leads to your works. Last week during the MLT meeting, and, and this isn't all we did, this took about two minutes, literally, we were talking about how to pronounce bag. Right? Apparently some say a bag is actually a bag. That is super confusing to me. If a bag is actually a bag, does one then say, would you stop bagging me? Like, do you flip-flop those completely? But it's the difficulty of how do you pronounce a word? I use this example to say that the judgment seat so remember, when you die, you're judged on your faith for your destination, but the judgment seat we as believers stand before is often called the Bema seat. But it's also called Bema. And some even pronounce it Bama. The fact that it's pronounced differently isn't really as important as understanding its purpose. And I'll tell you uh, right away as I, as I talk about this idea of this judgment seat, this is rarely talked about. But we're taught in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that believers will stand before the Bema seat, the reward seat, which is a judgment seat based on our works. Not as a result of our faith, but our works. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. In my understanding of the end times, this reward seat will take place after uh, the rapture. And so if you understand the end times uh, uh, just a little bit, there's gonna be this idea of a rapture when Christ returns for his church, when Christ returns for his bride. And then there's this period called a tribulation period, which is literally seven years of hell on earth when God's pouring out his wrath. So in my personal view, I believe uh, in what's called pre-trib rapture, which means Christ will return and we will be snatched from the earth as believers if you're still living, and then the tribulation will happen. So whether you are already dead or alive when the rapture takes place, it doesn't matter. 
It's at the Bema seat where we receive our rewards due to us for the things that we've done while we're here on this earth. Again, this isn't a location matter. It isn't like, this isn't a judgment seat where we stand and God's saying, um, do you go to heaven or hell? That's already been decided because of our faith. This is a reward seat that we all will stand in front of. And Paul's use of sports metaphors is prevalent all the way throughout his writings, using language and images with which his audience could relate, especially those who observed and perhaps even took part in the Greek Olympic Games. The ancient Olympic winners in these games that Paul often points back to received no medals. Instead, they received crowns that were made from olive leaves taken from what the Greeks considered the sacred tree at Olympia. The participant who finished in first place often would receive this crown made of leaves. But if you were in second place or third place, nothing. Only the first place winner. All believers will one day stand and receive rewards based on how we live this life. The thought and the imagery of that alone, um, even as I was writing this, even as I was going back, should cause us to reflect, should cause us to slow down, should cause us to pause and evaluate our life. The decisions and the choices that we make. It ought to stir us to think about our thoughts and our behaviors, the way we treat each other, the things that we say. So just to recap quickly, a person dies and their faith determines where they go. Later, believers will stand before the Bema seat. No one is exempt, all believers, and unbelievers before the great white throne judgment seat. Two different judgment seats, two different outcomes. The Bema judgment seat is for believers and the great white throne judgment seat is for unbelievers. So whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever, all will stand before some judgment seat. Question two, is the intermediate heaven a physical or spiritual realm? Luke 23, 39 through 43 says this. And this is the scene where Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's got criminals on both sides. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, kind of leaned forward in a sense as best he could and said, don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong, meaning Jesus. And then the criminal who started the conversation says this. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What place is Jesus referring to? He was speaking of an intermediate heaven, a place he referred to as paradise. 
the word paradise comes from a Persian word which means a walled park or an enclosed garden. Think of it like that. That's, that's the idea behind the word. A walled park or an enclosed garden. In fact, in the Old Testament, the word paradise was even used to describe the Garden of Eden. I want to take you back for a moment to the beginning of time. God created Adam and Eve and provided for them a perfect place to live. And he called it the Garden of Eden. Or the place of paradise. That was on earth. After they disobeyed God by eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the scripture says that he drove man out of the garden. Remember when they sinned, when they fell? God drove them out of the garden. And it goes on to say that at the east end of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the second tree that was in the garden, and that was the tree of life. So Adam and Eve are pushed out of the garden and there's this flaming sword that prevents them from getting back to what's called the tree of life that's in the garden. From all appearances, the tree of life being guarded by the cherubim and the place of paradise was never destroyed. It's quite possible that the garden of Eden retained its physicality, this is one possibility, and was removed from earth to a realm that could no longer be accessed by mankind. Therefore, and you're like, eh, that's a stretch, but I'll get some more scripture in a second. Therefore, one possibility is that the present intermediate heaven is the Garden of Eden in another realm that we cannot access in our current fleshly state. And the reason this is a reasonable possibility is because we know that the tree of life, the other tree that was in the original Garden of Eden is still there being guarded. Revelation 2, 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is, this is in the beginning of Revelation and there's, there's seven letters written to churches. And this is a, a part of one of them. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, believers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is where? in the paradise of God. So for a moment, let's retrace our steps and also look to the future regarding this tree of life. It may be one of the key pieces helping us understand the current intermediate heaven and the final heaven and the difference. It was first mentioned in relation to the Garden of Eden like we just talked about where Adam and Eve occupied the garden prior to the fall. Secondly, this tree is mentioned to still be in a place called paradise, the intermediate heaven. Thirdly, it is mentioned to be in the final heaven. Revelation 22, one and two. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life as clear as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God 
and of the lamb down the middle of the great street in the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Is it possible that the Garden of Eden, which contains the tree of life right now, and by the way, um, I did further research and there's many people uh, who are still looking for the Garden of Eden and they think, oh, um, coordinates wise, it must be about here because it talks about the rivers that intersect and the flow out of it. So there's some ideas there. Is it possible that the Garden of Eden, which contains the tree of life right now, will one day be a beautiful garden located in the middle of the New Jerusalem, the final heaven? Quite possible. Because the tree of life never leaves the scene of paradise all the way through scripture. That which was the perfect place for Adam and Eve, past. That which is the current intermediate heaven, present. And that which will be the New Jerusalem or the final heaven, future. The tree of life is a thread all throughout scripture that links the idea of the word paradise. The tree of life presents to us a continuum of what is called paradise. Question number three, what will their intermediate heaven be like? Revelation six, nine, and 11 in your Bibles. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. These are martyrs, people that lost their lives for Christ. And they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. In other words, there will be more martyrs. What do we learn from that one passage of scripture? In verse nine, people will be remembered for their lives here on this earth. So those mentioned here are known for and remembered as those who were slain because of their testimony. That's, so they're remembered for that. In verse 10, there's several things. People can express themselves audibly. It says, they called out, which suggests that they may in fact have some sort of physical form. They're fully conscious. From all appearances, these martyrs are fully conscious, aware of each other and aware of God. Verse 10 again, they're aware of what's happening on earth. The martyrs know enough to realize that those who killed them have not yet been judged. Verse 10 again, they ask God to intervene. They inquire as to how long before God sends judgment. Verse 10 again, they remember their lives here on this earth. They remember why they were murdered. Verse 11, they are distinct individuals containing physical form. So each of them was given a white robe. They're not mentioned as a group suggesting that they were some kind of group of robots or that there's some kind of mass or this blob. It says each of them 
suggesting uniqueness and individuality. Verse 11 again, their questions get answered. There's apparently communication in heaven between those who are and God. And where there are questions, there must also be a lack of knowledge. It appears they are not all knowing and that their knowledge can actually increase. They knew more after they asked the question than before they did. Verse 11 again, they live in anticipation of the final heaven. God promises to fulfill what they are requesting but says, you're gonna have to wait just a little bit longer. They obviously long for this, this final heaven and the fulfillment of all of God's promises. It's quite possible that the distinct difference between the intermediate heaven that we see here and have been talking about all morning and the eternal or final heaven is that there will not be sin, suffering, nor any knowledge of it. Verse 10 and 11, they're aware of time. The martyrs who are dressed in white robes ask God a time-dependent question. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, before you judge the inhabitants of the earth? Verse 11, God knows every detail down to the last drop of blood that will be shed. He's fully aware, and I'm gonna use one statistic, there are many out there, he's fully aware of the 150,000 people that die every year simply because they're a follower of Christ. They're called martyrs. He's aware of them. He knows the pain that they suffered and the persecution they endured. He knows exactly how many martyrs there will be and he's waiting until every last one of them have died for his sake. The fourth question, can people who currently reside in the intermediate heaven, see earth. We go to places like Hebrews 12.1, cloud of witnesses. This is what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down especially the sin that so easily trips us up and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. So in this one verse, we're encouraged to run the Christian race. We're encouraged to run it with perseverance and to rid ourselves of any sin that might be getting in the way, anything that might be tripping us up, anything that might be entangling us. And let us run with intent, let us run with purpose, live in a life that's pleasing to God, knowing that the Bema seat awaits us. But why? Since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, it says. It appears that what is being suggested here is that those saints that have gone before us and are now living in this intermediate heaven are there and they're cheering us on. It says that these witnesses surround us and not that they just preceded us, not that they've just gone before us. 
It's like they're watching a, a suspense movie, waiting with anticipation for, for the drama to come to an end when Jesus returns as the king and claims victory once and for all. Rejoicing before the angels is another indicator. Luke 15, seven and verse 10. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. In the same way, there is a joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents, when even one person surrenders their life to Christ. In these two verses, we learn that, that when a person comes to Christ and receives him as their Lord and Savior, there, there's a lot of rejoicing, a lot of celebration that takes place in heaven. Maybe, maybe you've heard that said before, and I, I know that when I've prayed with people and they've accepted Christ as their Savior, I say, you're not gonna believe what's going on right now. There's an incredible party happening right now in heaven. But by whom? By God? Absolutely. By angels? No question. By those individuals who have gone before us? Those witnesses we just talked about from Hebrews 12.1? What does it say in verse 10? There will be much rejoicing in the presence of angels. Who do you suppose is rejoicing here? The saints who have preceded us, no doubt. For there to be celebration there has to be a reason. Reason for celebration comes from hearing and seeing. Quite possibly they are fully aware of when a person comes to Jesus here on this earth and they rejoice in the presence of angels whenever it happens. That's pretty cool. I hope that you are leaving here even more encouraged when, than when you came in. Heaven, friends, is an is for real. <laughs> and today we have learned what happens to a person the minute that they die. We learned that the intermediate heaven is a physical place and what it might be like. And we've learned that people in the intermediate heaven just might be able to see earth. Again, all of this is drawn from scripture and the hints and the threads that we find woven through scripture. Let me leave you with one, one thing. I, I came across this quote by C.S. Lewis. I thought it was really powerful. Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for your word. And, um, this place that we call heaven, this, this eternal home that we have, this place that, that we ache for, that we long for, that we're homesick about. Your scripture points to the fact over and over and over again that this is a real place. There is no chance that when we take our last breath on this earth, we're just done, or that we sleep forever, or that we're annihilated. If we believe scripture to be true, and we do, the inerrant holy word of God, we trust you. And we love learning about our final home. 
Thank you, Lord, for the reminders from Scripture today. In Jesus' name, amen.